Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reef Podcast. Today's guest is a scientist, a podcaster, author and mentor all the way from the UK. His name is Stuart Webb. Welcome to the show, Stuart. How are you doing? Christian, very nice to be with you. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, no, the pleasure is always mine. Um, I was thinking about this before I came to do today's show that, you know, it's always a pleasure that I get to interview people from lots of different backgrounds and kind of tap into the various things that or the or, you know the knowledge and expertise they have and stuff and you yeah. know that yeah. sort of can inform on life and different areas things i don't know and it's it's always yeah. sort of great i'm and, a big i'm a big fan of the same thing christian because for me i've been on a you know i've been learning my entire life and i accept that you know 95 98 of what i know is what i've learned from other people and, uh, you know, that, that part of my, my journey, and you, you said at the beginning, as, as a scientist, you know, the one thing that scientists learn from a very early age when you start your career is that everything you do is built on somebody else's knowledge first, because you don't start from the beginning. You start from what other great people have done, and then you take that and you try and advance it, even a tiny little bit. So my entire life has been taking great ideas other people have had, acknowledging their contribution, and then moving it on just a fraction. And that's kind of where I've been for, for the last ooh, more years. Than I mean, tw 21 odd years now. So before we connect that to your business endeavors and such, I, I want to just sort of talk about your journey as a scientist. Because um, sure. I understand that you kind of began with science and yeah. you sort of crossed over to business at one point. And to be, yeah, to be fair, like it's never going to be not present in your life but obviously it is a different industry different focus different etc but um yeah. yeah you originally trained as a scientist and yeah. before we get into like your final role like just talk us a little bit about how you sort of got initially into that that field like how you trained and uh, why you decided to initially so i can remember back in my my, my youth when I was a child I was always coming up with these theories of why the world was the way it was you can remember uh, at the one point my grandmother sort of you know I was helping her do the washing up and I looked at her and said do you know all liquids contain water and she looked at me and said how do you know that and I went I don't know I've been thinking about it for a while and I'm, I'm sure that's the way it is so even when I was three or four I had all these theories now, I know now that not all liquids contain water, but at the time, that was the way my brain was sort of thinking about these things. So um, from a very early age, I was always questioning all these, you know, what is it that does that that means that that looks like that or that behaves in that way. And as I advanced through school and what have you, um, I just I just became the guy that was absolutely fascinated by things like uh, particularly chemistry at the time. Um, and then I started reading about these the, the, the DNA, the blueprint of the cell that creates all life. And that became my fascination. Uh, and as I got into uh, the time when I had to pick a university, I decided I wanted to go to a university that just almost studied how the cell was controlled by DNA. And that was my first, first choice. And I went and did that. And once I'd, I'd, I'd finished that degree, I'd already then started to look at the next thing that I was fascinated by. And that was when a virus, which is effectively just a piece of nucleic acid material, infects a cell, it hijacks the cell and makes the cell's DNA and processes 
do what the virus wants. So that became my next big fascination. So I went off and I studied my, uh, I'd studied a research uh, degree in order to be able to look at that. And that became the thing which I was most interested in. Now, you know, how, how does that, how does that sort of um, inform the rest of my life? It's the rest of the story, but <clears throat> excuse me. I was just fascinated by this. How can one small thing such as a virus completely hijack a cell and make it do what the, the virus wants rather than what the cell wants? Uh, and that is a, a, a subject all in itself, which I then spent 10 years basically studying. During the time of, of those studies, like what were the kind of biggest discoveries you made within that field of research and um, and also just in general as your career as a scientist? So I originally was looking at um, a particular virus which gets inside the cell, inside particularly nervous tissue, inside, inside nerve tissues, in nerve cells itself, and, and hides in amongst the DNA and stays completely dormant until it eventually erupts as um, uh, as, a, as a lesion it's, it's called the herpes simplex virus it's one that a lot of people have it produces the cold sore and I was I was trying to find a way of getting it to do what it does in the body now if you have cold sores you'll know that on occasions you will get uh, an eruption of a cold sore on your lip or wherever you get them largely because either you get stressed or because you get into the sunlight or something else uh, and I began to postulate it was something I didn't know quite what something to do with the the cell reacting to some form of, of damage to its its cellular um, uh, blueprint the dna uh, and i postulated that we could actually recreate that by causing uh some damage to the dna and then getting it to do what it does on a repeatable basis to be able to do that to my command if you like and I found a way of actually controlling the damage to some DNA in a very minor way. And that would cause this, um, this virus to suddenly reappear almost on command. Um, and that was something that was being tried and people had been trying to find ways to do. And um, I, I, we, I, got to, I got, got it to do that. And I can remember the day it happened um i'd been trying out some different ways and and it was one of those as i say you stood on the shoulders of giants somebody made a suggestion of something and i went oh i could use that I could build on that and so i took it to the next level uh, and then when it happened when when repeatedly i was able to uh, 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 introduce a substance in such a way that it caused this reactivation of the virus i wasn't actually in the lab that day i was off sick and somebody rang me from the lab, the, the, the person I was, I was working for, my supervisor, and he rang me up and he said, it worked. And I can remember the feeling, which was one of, I'm the second person to know this in the world. I'm the only other person. In fact, if I hadn't been sick today, I'd be the only person in the world. <laughs> and that yeah. was such a buzz that you suddenly get to sit there and go, I know something nobody else knows. And it's, and I know exactly why, and I know exactly how to do it again and again and again. And that was a big buzz for me. It was one of those, wow, I want to be able to repeat things again and again and again in a really sort of repeatable way. 
and, and and knowing that I could I could go in and I could effectively control something to the point where I would know exactly what the output would be became a huge huge buzz for me and actually that is kind of where I ended up in business because that became the driving force for the net for the second career if you like afterwards see the logic in it and I, I we will delve into the business side of things because I mean I don't know when I was looking at this and doing my research on you I was like it, it it's a very logical move to go from this field to the next because you know it's always about results and and once you figure out I suppose formulas you know then as you say you can repeat them and in business it's a it's a very similar thing although I do think it can be a bit more unpredictable in terms of the results I mean, sometimes yeah. but we'll get to that um, one thing I wanted to ask actually on that subject is obviously you mentioned that, you know, there's collaboration in science, but yeah. over the course of your career as a scientist, to what extent would you say that science as a career field is collaborative? Like, do you get egotistical people within that field? Do you get people trying to kind of take over things and say, oh, no, this is mine? Or would you say overall everyone's just kind of in it to... Uh, you yeah. know for the cause or, or something yeah yeah we're all human beings so you will always find the the egotist who is is keen to sort of you know dominate um but for the most part every scientist knows that you cannot exist in a scientific field without collaboration because there are too many things for one person to know there are very few of us who are capable of knowing everything there is to know. You have to use other people's knowledge. And, and indeed, in today's scientific community, it's becoming more and more collaborative than ever it was. In the past, because fields of knowledge were quite restricted, you could have one or possibly two people working together. But today, and you sort of touched on it, you know, um, for, for recent scientific endeavors, you have to understand not only the biology of the cell, but also um, chemistry and how drugs might interact as well as how human psychology might affect that so you can't have one discipline you have to have many 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 inputs into into most scientific experiments so, so science is becoming much more multidisciplinary as it's called it's becoming something where lots of people with lots of expertise have to contribute to make the greatest advances and so as a result, you have to know how to work as a team with very many different types of personalities, with people who are very introverted, with people who are extroverted. You have to understand how to control those egos that want to dominate everything. And they'll always be there, but you have to look beyond it. So most scientists do look at the greater picture. There are always going to be those people who are interested only in themselves and you have to manage that situation but for for a lot of the time i was working i was working in highly multidisciplinary type teams where i was working with because some of my work was involved in in the place where they started the research for the oxford astrazeneca virus i was there working with people who would understand not only immunology but viruses uh, and the immune system and also then the technology you need in order to advance all of that so there was there were lots of voices. Everybody had to, to work and collaborate. What do you make of um, people that kind of claim all the credit? Like I I know that we we sort of touched on that a little bit, but as you were speaking there, I kind of thought of like two key people that approached this in a very different way in the business world, but 
maybe it comes down to the way they think. The first one I thought of was Steve Jobs. And the second one I thought of was Elon Musk. And one thing in particular I've always noticed about Elon Musk is he always says, we are doing this. We're doing things, great things with Starlink, or we're doing great things with Tesla, etc. Uh, whereas Steve Jobs, he would, you know, speak as we, but it was kind of like, it seemed like every invention was was kind of like his brainchild, you know, like we, you know, we, yes, we have created the iPad or the iPhone, but it seemed like he got all the credit for it. And maybe that's just presentation. I don't know. But there's been controversy about that over the years, you know, like to what extent did he actually contribute or was he just kind of like project leader, so to speak? And I know that's a controversial thing to say, but I mean, it does beg the question, you know, like um, to, what, like, to what extent is, is that person actually involved in that process and, and spearheading it or are they just kind of guiding it? Like, cause you, one could argue that, you know, it was, it was not him per se. It was just his idea. And then a lot of people kind of enacted it, so to speak. And I think there's, there's an important lesson behind that Christian in terms of, um, if you're leading a business, if you're leading an endeavor, be it a scientific uh, uh, research project, or if you are uh, leading a business, you, you have to understand how you get the best from the people around you. Now, with, with some people, uh, you get the best by standing up and waving a flag from the front and saying, follow me, I know where we're going. And, and, and I think that was a sort of, um, that's a sort of common between Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. They, they have a vision for where they're going. I personally have always found that businesses advance quicker if the leader at the front is, is making it sound like it's more than just them leading. If they are a sort of, we know where, all of our strengths lie we know how to get the best from everybody and we will acknowledge everybody's contribution but it doesn't work exclusively like that you know some human beings want to be want to be uh, able to get on and do their job and not have to sort of you know be promoted and pushed to the front so um i think that business leaders nowadays because of the the, the, the large number of different forces that have to be marshaled brought together if you like need to be able to uh, need to be able to sort of acknowledge their team and i've always actually taken the the the, the, the maxim if you like the the the, uh, the rule in my own life in that i know that i know where my strengths are i know where my weaknesses are and i build a team around me that actually starts to address my weakness because i know i can do certain things i have ideas but I know that I then need somebody to help me sort of make that into a reality and complete it. So I get those people to work with me. I would put myself more in the sort of Elon Musk category than the Steve Jobs. But if you look at the job that Steve Jobs did, if you look at the way he led people, he had a very clear understanding of the quality that they needed to be able to reach. He knew mm. exactly what the experience needed to be, and he was not prepared to compromise. And that's a really strong, ethic that some business really needs if you have got a quality or if you have got a particular experience that you know has to be embedded you have got to drive that into everybody and so you have to keep repeating and repeating and repeating and that if you look at what the apple experience is all about is exactly what he did he knew exactly what the experience had to be and he just gathered the people around that would execute that vision that's a great thing to do 
it's not the way that everybody wants to work. And so I guess he would have lost a lot of people along the way who could have contributed, but he was prepared to sacrifice that to get the experience that he knew was going to be his brand uh, um, uh, champion. That's the thing. I feel like so even some companies I've worked for in the past have had that kind of more negative mindset of, you know, like you do all this work and then they're just pretty much waiting until you burn out and then, you know, you're replaced kind of thing. And I think if, if nothing else, this whole pandemic and, and the uh, subsequent great resignation and everything has kind of taught us that a lot of people are beginning to finally realize that their skills and mm -hmm. knowledge is worth something. It is in, in essence, a product that can be sold and negotiated on and, and is worth something. That's the thing. Like, I think a lot of people are very scared or have been very scared with their time um, I know, I know I, I used to be, I used to be very worried about the concept of being freelance and now I am completely freelance, but it's, 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 it's a tricky one. It's, it's still scary, but it's like, you, you got to value yourself. Yes. Yes. And I think that's an important consideration actually, Christian, because you know what we have at the moment, we have got, um, you know, employment, if you like, has become, is very one-sided. It's a, it's a take it or leave it sort of thing. You know, an, an employer, a, a, an organization can basically say, here's the offer, and if you don't like it, and it's it's where things like sort of, you know, casual labor or, or zero hour contracts and, and a bunch of other sort of fairly one-sided contracts have come from. Too many businesses have actually sort of said, you know, this is the way we will make sure that we get what we want. And slowly, I think that is becoming something that people have recognized is not fair to be want to, to want to put it in another word it's it's not what they want and then you know a business has got to respond how do they start to start ask themselves how do we make it fair for the people who are currently we need their talents for the people we need in order to make this thing work and so you've got to sort of put your mindset back into okay so how do we now start that more collaborative approach and i guess that's uh the 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 beginnings of people recognizing the beginnings of organizations recognizing that this thing is is going to be here for a while and we need to make sure that we actually sort of address it i am 110 percent convinced if that's a thing for a scientist to say but i'm certainly more than more than ever convinced that business leaders today have to be absolutely sure that they are portraying themselves as people who will collaborate with their teams rather than give them a series of instructions and hope that they will get carried out. It's just not going to work like that anymore. You've got to find ways of working with people who don't want to be in the office five days a week, who don't want to be commuting, particularly uh, particularly whether it's a waste of money and waste of time when they can be just as effective working at home. So how does a leader go about making sure that they work in those environments and be as effective? And, you know, there are ways of doing it. It just takes a rethink. I remember when I was at university, um, there was a particular module where they were going on and on and on and on about scientific management versus human relations theory. And, Obviously, scientific management sounded like the outdated kind of concept in as much as, you know, it came from Fordism, it came from the industrial age, etc. So that much makes sense. And sometimes you'll still see elements of it. And it, sometimes it is still necessary. But ultimately, we moved over to the human, human relations theory of approaching day-to-day -day business and that's why you know every company you see now is trying to act like a startup and be like, oh, look, we've got 
table tennis. Oh, we've got um, two day retreat at this place. Oh, you know, we've got coffee and, and it's like, that's great. But you know, at the end of the day, I think even that is outdated now because, and, and this is, you know, this is the thing that's always blown my mind because I've always said that I'm a business minded person ever since I was at school studying business and, and now, you know, obviously being a freelance business person, everything I do has business in it. Even this has branding and marketing, etc. And when I started freelancing, I began to realize that this whole 40 hour work week thing is just inefficient. And it doesn't, it's, it, to be honest, I mean, I think a lot of companies are wasting money on that. They're wasting money on that. They're wasting money on like unnecessary offices and stuff. And you are beginning to see companies reacting to that now and, 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 and adjusting. But there's a lot of companies that still seem to be very, you know, obsessed with control and, you know, stubborn. And, I, you know, it's like you need to adapt to change. The, the life is all about change. If you don't move with the changes, then you get left behind. Yeah, I think you've you think you've sort of hit the nail on the head with one thing you said there, actually, Christian, which is control. The the, the a lot of the time, um, you know, the I, I I talk a lot about innovation in some of the work I do. Obviously, you know, I when I was a scientist, my job was, if you like, about innovation. It was about finding new things and about finding new ways of doing things. And innovation, I think most organizations think that innovation happens because, you know, you've got people who are together in an office and they start doing things uh, together and that produces innovation. And therefore, in order to get innovation, you have to have people together doing things. And therefore, if you're sitting at home on your own in your own office, innovation won't happen and that will stifle the business growth and i don't believe for one minute that's true innovation is and we come back to the difference between human relations and scientific management human relation can be a process human human interaction can be uh it can be organized let me explain what i mean by that um innovation comes from people having unexpected conversations which actually lead to something new a lot of the time if you think of a of an office which is sort of on one floor the people you will interact with are the few people that are on the floor with you the office across town or the office across the world you won't interact with very much and therefore you won't get their input to ideas now, if you're in a world where everybody is connecting on a technology such as what we're using at the moment, Zoom, you can suddenly connect with somebody who's across the world. That's a person you wouldn't normally have interacted with, but it needs to be engineered in. Now, I had a wonderful day, not so many weeks ago, during a period when, when I was, and I work mainly from home anyway, but during a period when I met with somebody in New Zealand in the morning, somebody in seattle washington in the afternoon and with somebody from tennessee in the united states in the in the later evening mm -hmm. i would never have done that if i had to go and see each one of those persons in per in, in person it yeah. would just never have happened but i organized it so that i actually got those interactions now if you're in charge of a company and you're thinking to yourself how do i get interaction between all of my people let me give you a quick idea 
five minutes at the beginning of each meeting, you insist on people having a bit of a virtual coffee. It used to be the thing where you went into a meeting and you would just be sort of arriving and saying to people, hello. Nowadays, we have this thing which says, because we're online, we have to start on time and we have to finish. Man, throw the rules book away. D just give yourself five minutes at the beginning of the meeting to just have a bit of a chat. And then make sure you finish 10 minutes early and you have five minutes for a bit of a chat and then you leave the meeting room. You'll find those interactions that you're trying to enforce will happen just because people are chatting away. But it means that you've actually got to stop trying to have a 60 minute meeting and reduce it to 45, which means that you've got the sort of five minutes either end in order to have the chat and you've still got five minutes to get to your next meeting. So what do you have to do? You have to be much more focused about what you're meeting about because otherwise you'll spend 60 minutes attempting to fill the space. So let's make each meeting 50 minutes. Let's engineer in five minutes chat at the beginning and the end. Let's have a 45 minute really focused discussion where you actually find out what you're trying to do and agree on it. And let's all get some, some life back. So you, it can be done, but people have to rethink the way they're working rather than sort of hoping it will happen sort of somehow naturally. It means just rethinking the working day. I think because I've got a couple of things I want to say on that, but just keeping it with meetings for a second. I remember a company I used to work for was obsessed with meetings. Just, I mean, I remember when we, we moved to a new office and like suddenly we were having four, five, six meetings a week at one point. And it always used to frustrate me when I'd go in there, you know, because personally, you know, say what you want but i think a lot of the time meetings can be an email let's let's be real a lot Absolutely. of the time you know and and i get frustrated like i even if it's i'm working for someone else i'm like look i've got i've got work to do like I've got we, things. <laughs> yeah i got things i've got stuff to do that's what i'm here to do like how long are we going to sit here you know and just yeah you know, and then they go through these painful powerpoints and as you say i mean you sometimes they're just wasting time talking at the beginning and I suppose it, it does depend. Some meetings are useful. Like I always used to prefer the quick ones where it's like a quick bullet to, okay, like five, 10 minutes. This just, you know, and that's the thing. Those spontaneous ones were always better when we hadn't planned them. We we're like, oh, oh, we need to just quickly, have, let's go have a meeting. And we'd have like a, a meeting room, you know, sometimes you had to hire them It's stupid, but anyway, it was better when you could just walk in, sit down and go, right. And just hash it out for five or 10 minutes. And then that's when those better ideas came as opposed to the Monday morning meeting at 9am every week. But one thing that you said that I think is spot on and I've noticed this and now I get it from a purely just from a kind of business standpoint, as far as, day-to-day -day business but and especially the higher up you are in the company or mm. whatever if you're a business owner it used to kind of annoy me like how much business execs and business owners just seemingly had like lunches and meetings all the time and sometimes they are wasting time but a lot of the time it's what you were talking about it's trying to kind of meet with the people you want to meet with and and talk and and through the discussions you gradually start discussing ideas and then something you know you you you'll start having the sort of conversations where it'd be like what about if we did this and the person's like drinking their tea mm -hmm. okay well these are my concerns blah, blah 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 and then and that's how most business ideas work like for example this is a bit left field but um the initial 
set up for what used to be Top Gear with um, Jeremy Clarkson, etc. That was <laughs> decided between Jeremy Clarkson and the original producer or writer of Top Gear. And they were just sitting at a pub, basically creating the format for what we now know as, as Top Gear. That came from just sitting down at a pub and working it out and going, what if we did this? And I totally agree. I think that's the best way to do business a lot of the time. You, you know, you have these ideas and then you present them. It doesn't have to be in a boardroom or a conference room. And I think a lot of the time that's the problem because it becomes like a, a committee thing. You know, it's like you've got a room full of like 20 people and they're all like, you know, there's too many cooks. It's, it's just too much. Or is too, it many. You, yeah. too many. Too yeah, many. Is, you, have, you have a couple of people, you decide on a format and you work on it and you know you collaborate and then and it becomes something and i think also yeah. one, one thing i wanted to just add to that as well is i was watching um there's this amazing series on on youtube by a guy called what well, moniker is ordinary things and he does kind of like mini documentary style videos I think charlie brooker that kind of thing uh, and he did one on offices office spaces and it was brilliant because I remember seeing there was a particular design that he showed from the 1970s that looks like basically the modern office plan, like, uh, what do they call it? Uh, open plan office. Because obviously mm -hmm. all offices now are open plan. Like, it's just a nightmare. Uh, this is, I, I work from home, by the way. So I'm very happy with working from home in that scenario. And I'll get into why I hate open plan for, in a minute. But this particular 1970s style was immediately after like the cubicles and all of that sort of stuff. So it was like, anything's better than that. Oh, no, I think it was a bit before that, actually, that would come in the 90s, my apologies. So it was before that, it was basically like the first attempt at, at open plan, but in a very kind of laissez-faire kind of like oh we're in mm -hmm. this very relaxed environment and you know it's free flowing we can freely walk around and you know there's there's no walls there's no barriers we just relax and you know ideas come and it's it's a very kind of hippie great idea in theory but in actuality practicality it's like i need space to get my work done this is too noisy there's too much going on uh, this is horrible and then obviously it regret it transformed into the, the cubicle that sort of existed for a couple of decades around the 90s, 80s, that kind of time. And now we've kind of come full circle again. Now we've got open plan. And I know it's controversial to say, but I, I, I think it's true. I, I look at open plan as just a way for middle management to just kind of obsess <laughs> over. And just, no, but it's just true. It's true. Just look at everything that's happened with the pandemic. The pandemic has proven and like with so many studies, statistics, that's, that's what you gotta look at, it's facts. You're a scientist, like this, this is what matters, isn't it? Facts. The facts show people are much more productive working from home. Not everyone, yeah. not everyone is yeah. the same. Some people do prefer to be in that environment, you know, and I get that, you know, I'm the same when it comes to gym training, you know, I can't get anything done at home. I go to the gym, I get something done. But yeah, I don't know, like I, I work from home and I love it and I get way more done and I'm able to plan my time better. And this is when I started thinking about what I was talking about before with the how hours thing. Do I really need to be doing 40 hours a week? I can get all yeah. this done in, in like 10 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've got, you, you've sort of hit on a couple of things there, which is the, the open plan office is, is now proven to be hugely inefficient, but it, it is about a way of being able to um, uh, control 
what people are doing. Uh, and it's because managers don't know the correct way to actually measure what is useful work. I'm convinced of it. You know, I go back to what I used to do as a scientist. I would measure something. I would be there to see effectively if I could do an experiment which said if I do this thing, whatever it was, let's take an example, you know, if I was trying to sort of grow a cell in a different way, if I changed one of the components, would it grow better or grow worse? And I would make some measurements before I did it, change one thing and then see what happened. What most managers don't know how to do is to measure what reasonable work. And it's because they don't know from, uh, from, from their leaders what the thing is that they're trying to achieve. They've just been given a small part of the picture, which basically says, do this thing. And they go, well, I don't know what's going to contribute from my little bit of the world to the greater vision in order to be able to affect this and make it better. So what I'll do is I'll make sure everybody is 100% occupied because that's a good thing. Well, 100% occupied means that they're sitting in front of their computer doing what they think is work. Well, you know, I know from having spent many years actually managing many people that if you put them in front of a computer and say, fill that day, they'll fill the day. As you said, they'll fill the day with a meeting because what's better than a meeting? It looks like you're achieving something. Now that meeting could be a, you know, a meeting to agree about having a meeting. And then you have a pre-meeting to agree what you need to agree before you go into the meeting. You know, all of that sort of thing looks really productive. If you don't know what you're trying to achieve, all of that stuff looks like good work. Mm. But if you turn it around and say, the job that this group has to do is to make this thing that much better, you start asking the question, how much of what they're doing actually contributes to that end goal? And 90% of meetings would have to be eliminated because they're not contributing that goal. I agree with you. I, I used to sort of often say to the people who are working for me, and they would say, oh, we've had a meeting about it. I go, okay, what was the purpose of the meeting? And they'll look at me as if to say, why did we need a purpose? I go, let me explain the meeting. <laughs> What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me start by explaining the way that we're running meetings around here, chaps. You know, the, the, the meeting starts with an objective. We're yeah. going to achieve something. What you have is you've got every meeting. I used to say to my managers, every meeting must have an objective and an agenda. And I want you to stick to both. The objective is there to basically act like a rudder. It keeps you going in the right direction. The agenda keeps you to the time because as far as I'm concerned, time is it's precious. Yeah. So don't waste it. No meeting should last more than 45 minutes. That was the other rule. They'd look at me and go, yeah, but but in Outlook, it comes up as an hour. Okay, change your standard meeting uh, time in Outlook. Just because somebody set it at 60 minutes doesn't mean it has to be 60 minutes. In fact, if you can put together an agenda and it says that you should have a 35-minute meeting, you have a 35-minute meeting. You do not have 45 minutes just because that's the standard. If you can get it done in 15 minutes, you do it in 15 minutes. I can remember there were sort of times when I would say to people, please take the chairs out of the room to make sure that what you do is, is get people who are bored of standing up so that they're more happy to leave inside of 15 minutes because that will keep them from sort of talking and talking and talking. So, you know, change the environment to meet the actual objectives rather than what you're trying to do, which is change the objectives to meet the environment. So, you know, it would come back to once again, always turn around and saying, what is this meeting about? Why are we trying? What are we trying to achieve? How does that relate to our larger goal? Great. Go in and do that. Communication then became if I need to tell a lot of people a lot of things, do it by email. Yeah. Because if I drag all of those people together to talk at them, 
unless what you wanted to do was talk at them for a, four, for a few minutes and then say, ask me the questions you need to ask so that I can answer them now without having to sort of, you know, go away and script it. I will, I will answer questions. And if I can't answer the question or if I don't know, I will turn around and say, I don't know. So any meeting then became something which was, let me tell you something, ask me questions, or I'll put it out to you in an email because it's just going to be me talking at you. So save your time, read it when you're ready. And it's just a much better way of managing things. So it, it just, it, I'm, I'm always about sort of saying, use the objectives and use the, 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 the larger goal to really sort of control your, your thinking about what you're trying to do rather than doing what, so many people do which is here's the environment how do i make the environment somehow meet what i'm doing yeah i think like another thing as well is like if you just don't like okay for example often you'll have like several meetings that are scheduled every week and they happen every week you know etc right sometimes they're necessary a lot of the time it's like oh well we just do this meeting every monday blah 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 and it's like but do you need to Yes. Like, what if you got? What if you haven't got anything to, to discuss? Like, just yes. don't don't do a meeting that week, or you know, absolutely right stuff like that. And and also like this used to frustrate me as well, where um, you know, you spoke about like be, being able to make it easier for people to leave. I remember so many times, and this included me too, where you'd have a whole meeting, and let's say it's like a, I don't know, sales meeting or something, and I'm a marketing guy, and this is in a company where the marketing and sales are separate. So we don't know anything the sales team does and marketing doesn't, you know, vice versa. And the very first thing one of the managers said to me is, oh yeah, um, yeah, don't worry, this, this, none of this has anything to do with you. And I'm thinking, can I go then? Do I need to be here? And it's like, oh no, no, you need to be here because you know, it's important, like, you know, it's business stuff, like, you know, you need to know. And it's like, but do I really need to know? Do I need to know the quarterly targets for uh, the next quarter when everything I do is involved with content management and SEO? No, I don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> unless there's some crossover, like if there's crossover, if I'm actually going to have to work with the sales team, great. Yeah, I should be there. But if there's not going to be any crossover or work, then why am I included here? Why are you wasting my time? You know, this is work. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting point. And I, and I think it's a good one, Christian, because I remember being in a meeting with um, the, the CEO. They were, they were a very new chief executive. They'd just come into the company and they sat in, in a meeting room and um, you know, there were about 17, 18 people around the table. Uh, and so this CEO um, basically started, she, she started by you know, saying, look, I've not met anybody here yet, but let me just, uh, let me just start by sort of saying, here's why I think I'm in this meeting. And then she turned to the person on your left and she said, and why do you think you're in this meeting? And this person sort of struggled a little bit. And she sort of looked at him and she said, I'm not entirely convinced you need to be here because I don't think you're convinced you want to be in this meeting. So please don't waste your time or anybody else's. Go and do something else. And they got up and left and she turned to the person to their left and said, and why are you here in this meeting? And they had a good solid reason. And then she turned to the next person and said, why are you here in this meeting? And they looked a, a bit sheepish and said, I don't think I need to be here. So she said, well, please don't waste your time. And he got up and walked out. By this stage, there were people at the far end of the table who were already picking up their stuff and walking out because they knew what was going to happen. And in the end, those 17 people were reduced to about six. And suddenly it was a productive, focused meeting about the things that those six people needed to get sorted. And she looked at me and she said, 
that's the way we do meetings. And I thought, I love it. I'm going to be able to do this. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable with people now. You know, I go into meetings and I start by saying, so what do you think you're here to do? And if they don't have a good reason, I go, please go and do something else. Please go and do something useful because this is not a useful use of your time. And it can cut meetings down to absolutely nothing. You know, uh, uh, if you're not going to achieve something, go and do something which is actually going to be achieved. I can, I can, I can remember when I was doing some work for BT, I went for a, to a meeting six weeks in a row before I worked out it had nothing to do with me. And eventually I worked out it had nothing to do with me and I stopped going to the meeting. Do you know, I was still copied in on the actions that I was supposed to do, which I hadn't bothered to do. Nobody came and asked me whether or not I was getting on with them because I suddenly realized it had nothing to do with me. So I stopped going. Uh, but that meeting was carrying on and on and on. I don't know if it ever, it's probably still happening. We still go there. They're probably still CCing you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You know, we, 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 we have to get back to what, you know, work is supposed to be trying to achieve and reject it. If you are not aligned with the objectives of the overall company and you don't know how they fit, ask the question, what's the company trying to achieve? What's my part in it? And then make sure all your goals are aligned with that. Yeah, I think it always comes down to to results at the end of the day. That's that's why you know, I think I think it, it makes more sense to do it like project by project or deadlines. You know, like when I started seeing companies I work for in the past, you know, do time tracking and stuff. I was like, this is pointless. This is stupid. You know, do it by deadlines. Do it by the money we're making from projects. Do it by these kind of things. You know, and what you were saying before about um, you talking about science approach and stuff. Like, I think. That's kind of key. You know, in science, it's like you're testing a hypothesis and then you have like a control, you have uh, maybe several others and you're testing like several different variables, essentially A-B testing. And sometimes businesses do this. You know, maybe you do like an email campaign and you try one thing with a particular title and one thing without, or you try one thing with a CTA and one thing without, like, and that's A-B testing. And you're going to find out which is more effective. But when it comes to the stuff we've been discussing, when it comes to meetings, office plans, companies don't seem to do that. They just do this stuff and then they're like, huh, that's not working. People are not as efficient. And it's like, well, of course not, because you're not testing the alternative. Absolutely. I love it. You've hit my hot button, Christian. Well done. Testing. Do you know, you're absolutely right. That was the scientific approach. It was test everything. And I test everything. It isn't just the call to action color or it isn't just the headline i literally test everything i i have a you know when i work with an organization i spend a lot of my time working with um guys who are people who are running a, a businesses you know they're, they're people that have got to a particular standard and they're now trying to grow to the next level they're people that are wanting to go from one space to another and they're looking and saying right what do i have to do and the first thing you do is right okay I talk about what I call the champion challenger approach. You've already got a way of doing something. Let's call that the champion. Let's say that's the established champion. Now, you know, in 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 uh, in, in medieval times, you would you would have sort of jousts and things like that, and the champion would be the one that was standing, and the challenger would come in and they would try and knock the champion off their horse, and they'd become the new champion. That's the process that I go through with with organisational leaders now. I go, okay. What's the thing you're doing at the moment? Okay, let's say that's your champion. Now let's challenge it. Let's look around and say, what do we try and change? And you change something and you find out if it works. And if it works, 
you've got a new champion. Now you bring in another challenger, another new thing you try. Now, maybe that doesn't work on this occasion and the champion remains. Terrific. Bring in another challenger and see what happens. Keep testing every single variable you can until you optimize to the point where it is growing. Well, of course, what's going to happen as soon as you get that champion and it's working perfectly, the outside world changes. And that means your challenger has to come back in to, to reflect the new world. You know, we had a we had a we had a change in the environment when we had the pandemic. So that suddenly affected everything. But too many organizations think the established way of doing things, the champion, is the continued way of working. It's not. The continued way of working is just your current champion. The challenger has to be somebody that says, right, we're going to try and change this one thing. Maybe it's our meeting structure. Maybe it's the way we're targeting our audience. Maybe it's the way we're having to currently communicate with our uh, potential uh, customers. Maybe we're going to challenge the way in which we're delivering things, be it sales, marketing, actually, uh, actually producing our product or service. Everything is up for challenge. Everything has to be constantly tested against the best of the best. So you're absolutely bang on right when you say this. Test, test, test. I love it when people start talking about testing. If you're a business leader not prepared to test, you're not prepared to grow, you're not prepared to change, you're prepared to die. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I feel like, and it goes back to what I said before about, you know, accepting that life is about change and, you know, that what is the case in this year is going to be different in six months from now and if you're in a perpetual state of testing within your company then you're already ready for change and for the inevitabilities that occur and it's not going to be such a hit when things change and also if you're looking purely at results and nothing else if you're just looking at how it's going you know okay let's take the meetings thing for example right let's say you find your champion as you said and, and it's working for you right and you run with that for a bit. And then you notice, but you're still testing. You're still testing that whole period. Even though that thing is working for you, you're still testing it. And then suddenly it slips. And you're like, oh, why is that? So then you start tricking the variables and everything. And then you figure out the reason why. And then you run with it. But the key is you, didn't, you never stop. You didn't drop the ball. You didn't go, oh, well, we figured it out now. So that's it. We just keep doing it like that. And it's like, yeah. that's just not how you do business business is it, it, you have to accept that you're perpetually going to be tweaking things testing constant, things constant you know? change. Yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely um let's um let's let's just bring it back for science for a second um i just wanted to understand how you made the transition from science to business so obviously you sort of ended this career in science obviously it's still with you i mean as we sort of figure out just now, you know, it's, it's clearly on your mind all the time. It's just, you're using it in a different way now, but in terms of the actual career progression and, and the switch over, what, what led you to think, okay, I've done what I need to do in science. Now it's time to go into business. And how did you make that transition? So I was, uh, I was, I was relatively successful. I made uh, a number of discoveries and, and, and published them as you as a scientist do does they put them into scientific journals and those journals those publications add up to sort of you know uh if you like sort of you know points on your points on your your, your cv which which enable you to sort of progress to the next level so i was doing okay uh publications were coming um i was still getting on pretty well um and uh, i got to the stage where i was thinking about the next step and um, 
at the time I was also working in trying to 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 improve the way in which we were reporting um, re results. My, my research was based uh, in our hospital laboratory at the time, and I was involved in trying to move to the next level to report the way in which we were telling the, the hospital how um, the, um, the, the the results of, of patients tests. Uh, and I became fascinated by this as once again, going back to the fact that it would be, you could improve things constantly. So I wanted to constantly improve things. Um, and I, in the evenings after doing research, um, so about sort of, you know, I'd start this work about nine o'clock in the evening, having spent a day in the lab doing my research. There was a guy that was particularly good at linking machines to computers. So these the, the machines that were getting results of, of blood that was taken from patients and, and getting results from those, those patient uh, patient samples. I asked him whether or not he could find a way of linking the computer to the machine and taking all the results from the machine and dumping it on the computer so that we could produce a printout much more easily and in importing that into a computer database, as it turned out. And he said he thought we could do it after many weeks of tinkering. He got the result and I went, OK, this is interesting. Um, and, and then I extended that so that we were actually able to link all of these results up and produce a database which would report all of this out to the to the hospital and it was much more efficient and one of the machine manufacturers saw all this and said how are you doing this we'd love to know how you're doing it and robert told him how he was doing it and i told him what he was in and it got known and a university asked me to come and help them to link their computers up to the internet so I sort of made the transition from somebody who was doing research at a bench all the time to somebody who was still associated with the university, but was now trying to link computers to the internet because it was very new at the time. So I did that for a bit and I, um, I came across Tim Berners-Lee, who was working on the World Wide Web. And I, I took his ideas and had a couple of conversations with him to sort of move it forward and understand how I could use the World Wide Web to teach medical students. And, and I, I did that for, for a while. And then I, I got to the end of that particular period. I was on a short term contract and I thought I've got to go and do something else now. I've got to either find myself back in research or apply to become a lecturer or go and do something with this internet-y thing. Um, and so I had a choice. And I didn't particularly want to become a university lecturer. I didn't really want to go and work for a drug company. And I thought this internet-y thing was fascinating. So I wrote to a couple of companies and said, look, this is my background. This is what I think I'm good at. And one of them employed me. And the next thing I know is I was, I was a consultant uh, for something called Workflow. And um, I very quickly rose rose through the ranks there and then I got headhunted by another company and I ended up leading their e-business division which at the time was everything to do with the internet and and, and things and that company um, that company we, we sort of sold that so I sort of suddenly got involved in sort of managing sales and mergers and things like that and I thought okay that's interesting and then I was headhunted by um, British Telecom to go and work for them and I became one of their uh, troubleshooters for 
um, any project across the world where there was problems. So I became a corporate troubleshooter. So I was dealing with some fairly big, um, big projects. I dealt with people like the European Space Agency for a while and things like that. And I was dealing with quite a lot of sort of high complexity uh, uh, projects. And the one thing I kept coming back to was this, if I can control all the variables, if I can put together a series of formulas, if I can put together a series of, of ways to do things, none of these problems would happen. And that became the foundations of the business I run now, which is how do you go about putting together a series of rock solid formulas that actually enable you to grow a company without it getting into any sort of serious trouble, without it sort of getting, um, getting out of kilter, because you have to have each part of the formula working properly. And so I left British Telecom and started to work for myself and, and grow companies by using this idea. And, you know, you, you just basically sort of said that that scientific thinking stay with me because everywhere I went, I was trying to instill in the people I worked with and the people I was working for the same rigorous thinking that I always had, which is have everything stable make sure you're changing one thing in order to sort of discover the next thing don't be trying to do too many things at once because that leads to too many things that you can't control and so i was always employing that i actually thought that my training if you like as a as a scientist would actually hamper my scientific uh, in, in, in um, hamper my business career mm. but i discovered it actually enhanced it I always thought that having this sort of rigorous formula approach would actually hold me back. But because you look at people like Elon Musk and, and Steve Jobs and they don't seem to have any formulas. They don't seem to have any formulas, but they do. You just don't see them until you start looking at it in more detail. They have rock solid formulas. They're just not talking about them. They're talking about other things. But behind everything that they do are rock solid formulas that they know work again and again and again. So that's what I'm trying to do now is to bring those secrets of those rock solid formulas that the big businesses use to, to, to grow year on year, to produce leads year on year, to produce profits year on year, and actually expose those to the sort of smaller business people that need to know about that, that don't get the opportunity to hear them. When I was at school, I remember the... Um... The name of the the building which which housed economics and business and etc was called the social sciences building life sciences whatever you want to call it and i always used to find that kind of quirky and now i understand especially based on what you're saying as well that <clears throat> excuse me that <clears throat> they are sciences at their heart they and they have to be because that's how you you make money is through finding these techniques that are often based in formulas or something to that effect that enable you to achieve these goals that you have you know it always comes down to that the bottom line it does, it does. and they you know i come back to it again and again we look at people the inspirational sort of leaders that we think don't have any rock solid formulas that they're operating but they do have rock solid formulas we just don't see them and they're hidden and and even Elon Musk has rock solid formulas that he is constantly referring back to that actually ensure his businesses grow and grow and grow and grow. I just want to expose those those formulas to people that seem to be looking and saying, I don't get it. Why is it things are things aren't working for my business? And the answer is you need to embed some of these rock solid formulas that you know will constantly cause your business to grow and don't change them until you have a challenger that comes along 
and actually sort of you prove is the better way and you lock in a new formula and then you say again 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 it's all about just exposing all of that and getting people to understand that and they're not not they don't get they don't get it until somebody helps them to understand it in terms of the work that you do building scaling and selling businesses and um this is predominantly consultancy as i understand this business is that right hmm. so what are the kind of most common challenges you find within this field like what, what what are the most what are most companies getting wrong that you help sort of so, eradicate so let's 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 give you the, the the obvious one most most of us you know we all struggle with getting leads and most people are are getting i would i would suggest they they have several things going on one of which is uh, i think you need at least six lead generation techniques working for you at any one time most people have one or two and think that they'll get it all from doing social media or doing online ads. You need to have six strategies, six tactics going for you at one time. And they can't all be online. You have to have some offline, you have some online. So whether or not the offline is writing a letter and the online is writing an email, you have to have both working for you. You can't expect people to be sort of only responding to one. So I think there's, there's, that's your first and obvious one. Too many people have too few strategies. The other thing is, I think too often within their marketing strategies, they so often are missing, and I, I talk a lot about in mine about sort of the nine elements of what I believe the marketing DNA. Too often they haven't got their and this is the big one, they are not talking to their ideal client. They haven't identified who their ideal client is. Now, you know, there's, there are reams written about this, but it is fairly simple. You know, you have got to sort of work out what is the problem that you solve, find the person with that problem, tell them you have got a solution to their problem. If you can do those three things, if you can work out, this is the problem that I solve, and it, it's not quite as simple as just saying, well, it's obvious, isn't it? But if you can work out the problem, you then find the person that has that problem. And then, and I was talking about this to a marketing director only the other day who was saying to me, I need to hire a social media manager. And I, why? And he said, I need to shout louder so that people can hear about me through the noise. And I said, no, 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 don't shout louder. Find the person that's got the absolute ideal, you know, the, the problem that you solve, and then just lean forward and whisper in their ear. You won't need to sell them anything. They will snatch it out of your hand at whatever price you put on it because they're desperate for the solution. Now, it might be, you know, and this comes back to something that I was, once again, I think it's who many businesses are doing. They're trying to say to themselves, we need lots and lots of leads. You don't need lots of leads because actually every business has got a number, the number of people they can actually take on as a customer at any one time. Now, if you're a chiropractor and you want to deliver a high quality service, you don't need 12,000 people knocking on your door on a Monday morning saying, I want, want my problem solved. Because if, if you have 12,000 people, you can't deal with 12,000 people anyway. You've got a number and it might be you want three new customers a week. Terrific. So you only need three new customers. If you only need three new customers, if you say your conversion rate is 50%, you only need six leads a week then, don't you? So stop trying to gain 12,000 leads a week, get six and get six people with the problem that you've got and then whisper in their ear, I've got the solution. 
the problem you'll have is you might get all six converted, in which case you've suddenly got twice as many problems as you need. But that's why I think most people go wrong. They're looking for lots and lots of things and actually trying to do too many things. Just work out what your number is and what's the perfect problem, perfect client, the, the problem, and then lean forward and tell those people. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned this because I actually had a similar thing with uh, with podcasting. Because uh, one thing I always struggle with is obviously finding regular guests, right? And um, sometimes that comes through general outreach. Sometimes that comes through um, just posting everywhere. Sometimes people you know, obviously reach out to me, but sometimes when I do reach out, I get nothing. Then the next time get inundated. Like right now I'm playing catch up. Like I've got a lot of stuff booked for the next two and a half weeks, three weeks, something like that. And I'm like, this is too much, but it's good. I've got to run with it. Cause you know, it's a period of demand, but then I don't know when that next period is going to be where there'd be no demand. And it's, it's a tricky thing. Um, and 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 just back to your point, like it's in business. I mean, yeah, you have to be able to to know that you can deal with that demand and and work within those parameters. And you know, because you, the last thing you want to do is turn people away and be like, "I'm too busy for you." You, you, you know, we, none of us want to turn business away. But at the same time, we all want to be known for the. Uh, quality of service that we want to give so we have to make sure that what we're doing is delivering true quality service so so you know every business has got that number it's it's you know and if you if you want to scale then obviously you need to make sure that you've got a huge number of things in place before you start that journey of scaling because otherwise your quality of service will drop so you know there's a lot of things to make sure are right and you've got systems in place i, I do an awful lot of work with business owners about making sure their systems are right so so let's just get back to you know what's that number the other key thing that i think too many businesses get wrong and i'm just going to give you two because i talked about there are nine things but let's not get into all nine now but so there are two other ones that i think businesses do so wrong they talk about the features of their product please stop selling me the features of your product i don't care if it's the 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 biggest pounding drill on the block i want to know will it put the hole in the wall where i want my shelf you know so go back to the benefit to me too many businesses forget the benefit to me tell me what my what you you know my problem you told me you know my problem now tell me what's your solution and how will it benefit me too many businesses forget to tell me what is their thing going to do that makes my problem go away it's just and the next thing is the call to action. You'll know this one, Christian, because you know about marketing and you know call to action. Do you know that the greatest thing that I see too many businesses do with the call to action? They'll took that button on the website that says call me. And my immediate response is, well, why? And what happens next? Because if I call you, am I going to end up buying it on the phone? I don't know that I want that. So for goodness sake, when you say call me, tell me what's going to happen. Tell me that, that I'm not going to be committing my entire life to you now. Just say, call me for a free introductory offer, mm -hmm. or call me for, for, for call me in order for me to send you my 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 information pack. Too many businesses do this. Call me, and you think I'm not going to call you until I know what's going to happen next. So tell me what's going to happen next, because otherwise I feel like I'm committing my life. And that's the other thing that I would exhort every business to do. Just tell me what's the next step so that I can feel safe. 
you know, that's where we've, we, we've got to remember to, to take our customers by the hand and lead them along a gentle path. We, we, we're at, otherwise, we're asking them to leap off a cliff for no good reason. I think you, you've, you've really touched on something brilliant there. Um, I was looking up, just randomly, it just reminded me of this. I was looking up um, options to get unlimited. Basically, I'm looking into getting unlimited data at the moment, just side side note you know <laughs> no it's random but you'll see why i'm raising this so i was looking into it and there was two different options one of them was unlimited data uh on like a 24-month contract and i was like oh, i don't want to get invested in that like i just you know i've got plenty of things i'm already paying for like i just you know as soon as i see that i'm like Ugh. and like every company does that phone companies etc it's like oh 24 months 36 months and it's like you got to think about that. You're tied with them for like two, three years, and it's very difficult to get out of that. Yeah. And that was my mindset. And then I saw another deal, and it said it was the same deal, one month contract. Yeah. I was like, great. And there's an upfront cost. Okay, so that's the trade off, but that's fine. It's only an extra five quid. Great. But then I'm looking at the details for the month, and I'm thinking logically, oh, it's got to be a rollover contract, right? So I'm looking everywhere there, like rollover, like any information that would indicate, and to go back to what you said, what happens next? Yeah, okay, great, one month, but then what? Nothing, just nothing. And, and again, like if I would call them, it'd be the same thing as what you outlined it, but like, oh, so you wanna do this? No, 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 I just want information. Oh yes, 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 but then, you know, you know, we're gonna make you sign up and you're gonna sign up for this and that. And then it's like, no, 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 no. Just give me the details. I will go away and I will come back to you and I will tell you what I want, not the other way around. Because that's what's yeah. changed. Firepower is, is a big thing. Though. That's, that's the, the customer knows everything. It's yeah. not like the old days where you're informing. The salesman's yeah. kind of um, purpose, if you like, is more, more like a guide person. Guide is a good word. Yeah, like it's... You know, and I, I actually think it's a little audacious to tell people these days, like, unless they truly don't know, then you can, you know. I, you know, I, I do, I do work with, as I say, I work with a lot of business owners who are scaling their business, of, you know, and, and I say to them, you know, do, you, you know, we have to go, we have to constantly tell the sales team, they have two ears and one mouth and they use them in that ratio. You know, the salesperson should be listening more than they're talking yep. because the thing about selling nowadays, and I believe this applies to telephones as it much it does to, to major consultancy is to be listening for the problem that the person has and then saying, this is how we address your problem. This is how we solve your problem. And if you're not listening, you won't hear the problem because you'll be talking too much. So just listen and find out. And then if you don't know the answer, turn around and say, I'll be back to you because most customers will go, that's refreshing. <laughs> I like that. I'll say just as on a side note as well, listening in general in life, and I've said this before, but I want to reiterate this because I think it's a very important lesson in life. Listening can get you so far and it sounds like a very basic thing. Like, what do you mean? I listen. Do you really listen? Mm. Like if someone comes to you with a problem and you're able to recount exactly what they said, that's not listening. That's just hearing what they're saying and regurgitating. Listening is actually understanding as yes. you said the problem and to bring it to what we do um for example with podcasting i got a lot better 
at podcasting when I started listening. Now you're probably going to think, what do you mean? Were you, were you not listening before? Yes. But look, here's a sheet of questions I have for Stuart today, right? I barely touched these. Why? Because I'm listening to Stuart and what he has to say. And in my head, I'm kind of working, you know, because it's an interesting conversation anyway, but I'm thinking in my mind, oh, I could ask him this, I could ask him this. And I'm also just enjoying the conversation. And that makes for a better podcast. Yeah. So purely and just by listening, I've managed to make this better and more enjoyable. And it makes for a better sale. You know, in terms of selling, it makes for a better sale because, you know, the one thing that we all, and the, you know, another one of the, the we're talking about sort of where does, where does the, where, where do businesses go wrong? They don't address the buyer's remorse. They have people who are constantly saying, but what if, but what if, but what if, you know, part of your, part of your marketing has to be to address the buyer's remorse. You know, how do you address the buyer's remorse? You do things like, you know, here's a guarantee. If you don't like it, we'll get, you can send it back. You know, why do we all, why do we all buy from people like Amazon? Because we know the returns policy. If you're not happy, send it back. I mean, that is the biggest, that is, I, you know, you, you buy things you, like Amazon or not, people will not be worried about whether or not they bought something wrong because they know that getting it back not only is most of the time free, but it just is so easy. I will say, actually, ever since companies started advertising that guarantee thing, like, I, I, I don't know, maybe that's just they've managed to get me on that. But, like, I see when companies don't offer that, I trust them less than when companies offer it. Cause I kind of feel like the fact that they're offering it means that they're so sure yeah. that I'm going to like this, that yeah. they don't have any worries. So they're easily yeah. able to offer that guarantee. Yeah. But this is interesting. Yeah. I tell you, I tell you, I, I worked with a company recently that, that their guarantee was so rock solid. I said, are you sure you'll make any money on it? And they went, we're so good at our product. We're, we're really prepared to back it. I mean, they backed it with this. Not only will we give you, not only will we give, give you the money back, we'll pay for somebody else to come in and do what we do because you think that they're better than us. And we'll give you a hundred pounds in addition. I went, you'll never make any money. And they went, we've never lost a sale yet. And they were, they were that good. They were prepared to turn and say, if you're not happy with our service, we'll pay for somebody else to come and do it plus a hundred pounds. And I sort of said that this, this is, this is disastrous. This is not. And they went, yeah, watch. I, I was astounded, not a single complaint. And I tell you what, more people signed up because they looked at that guarantee. Well, they must be the best then. If they honestly will pay somebody else to come and do it because they're so confident they're the best anyway. Well, we're going to trust them. And they were right. They got every single lead converted because they would turn around and go, we ain't going to find anybody better than this, are we? Now, you know, yes, they were good. I will, I will back them 100%. They were absolutely right, but they were convinced. And I, I just said, well, let's, let's start thinking about a guarantee. And somebody came up with that and I went, that's a bit too much. No, they said, yeah, we're confident. And they were right. Yeah, I reckon it's a twofold deal in the sense that they are confident in their product, but also I reckon they're probably very fixated on reputation. Oh, they were. <laughs> you know, because last thing you want is even just a casual person to drop you a bad review. If you can sort of reduce that to a minimum, to a very low percentage, then people are going to trust you because people yeah. are always looking at those reviews now. That's like yeah. fixated on that. Yeah, and they were right. Um, let's move it forward. So obviously I mentioned at the beginning of this, you're an author. 
you are the author of five simple steps to growing your business the proven formula for building your business what can you tell us about this book your process for writing it and the kind of inspiration for its inception and the key takeaways for readers Oh, okay. Gosh, it's an awful lot there. Um, okay, Sorry. so, uh, uh, so um, what does it say? Well, it, it basically it, it sets out, as I say, some of these some of these formulas. There, there's 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 a there's, there's more there's there's more in my head still to get out. I'll say that to start with Christian. There's still some more to come. So it's not it's not the end. Uh, it's the beginning. Uh, so the the idea is to sort of lay out some of these formulas. So in, in this book, I'm in particular talking about the the five things that I think make your delivery of your product uh, the the thing which which will make it um, top notch. So the five steps being um, transforming your marketing, uh, generating leads for your business, um, converting those leads to being customers, maximizing the customer value, and then the systems behind making all of those four work even more effectively so that's that's the first step and it it it, it it's mainly um uh, posed to people who have come from having a, a small business and are now in the process of growing that to to the next stage if you like the, the the beginnings of the sort of the one or two band person who are now saying i want to move my business to becoming the sort of small organization and my next book saying this already my next book is going to address that how do you start to um you know get the right people involved around you how do you do that that bit where you scale your business from the next to the next level to moving it on so that's the five steps it's about transforming your marketing lead generation it's about uh, customer conversion maximizing customer value and the systems behind it and there's, there's more to come the process now the, my process is, is interesting i get up early um and so this this kind of goes go back to to the formulas sorry to have to go back to the same old subject so here we go what's the what's the what's the, pr the process the process is get up early so i i get up early the first thing i do is i drink a pint of water i i drink i drink that because i, I realized uh, many 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 years ago i did a little bit of um uh competitive um a sportsmanship i was i was a i was a i was a competitive cyclist actually in my early years and i used to sort of you know focus on how do i get my body ready to get up and go for a bike ride early in the morning so i used to get up and drink in order to hydrate in order to be ready at top performance when i got on my bike first thing in the morning so i get up and drink something the next thing i do is sit down and i just read uh, for a few minutes and sort of get my head ready um, then i i spend a few minutes sort of um doing affirmations and making sure that I'm I'm in a good space. And that takes me up to about sort of 6.30 or so. I then spend two hours writing. I then just spend two hours just battering stuff out um, on, on the keyboard. Now, a lot of this is, is, is what you would describe as, you know, I would I would just put down a flow of consciousness. It, 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 I, I write like I speak. Um, mm. And in fact, recently I've started to adopt, you can get some quite good transcription software now. So I speak and it turns it into words. So I'd speak for sort of maybe half an hour. I'd just talk to you as I'm talking like now and say, so the book's going to be about this, blah, blah, blah. blah. And then I'd spend about um, uh, three quarters of an hour, an hour editing what I've just spoken and turning it into something which is, which is, which is more like the written word. So that takes me on to about 8.30. 
Um, and then I will, I've done breakfast, I do some exercise, uh, which then takes me, well, I know to do the exercise and then breakfast. So that's the next thing. So, I, so it takes me up to about 9.30. 9.30, I'm then ready to start my day. So that's the first time I start looking at emails. I haven't until that stage opened emails, haven't opened social media, I haven't done any of that sort of thing. I look at my emails for the first time at 9.30 in the morning, because if I don't, if I get distracted, I'll never get around to doing any writing. I will only start looking at emails and social media and things that would distract me after I've got that done. Uh, and I keep that down to about half an hour. I'll have half an hour of answering emails, writing emails, um, and then uh, doing any sort of, you know, LinkedIn or Twitter or anything like that. And then at about 10 o'clock, I then um, do my next thing. I, I, like you, I sort of record podcasts and I record video blogs and things like that. And then later on that evening, I'll look at what I wrote and find out just how much rubbish was in it and chop out about three quarters of it because I'll have then thought about it during the day and thought, you know, I would. Yeah. So, so about, you know, 4.35 o'clock, I'll, I'll take away a lot and think, OK, so tomorrow when I get up, this is what I want to focus on talking about. So it, 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 it moves it forward, but it moves it forward largely by chopping stuff out rather than adding stuff in. Um, because I can sort of talk, as you can probably tell, I can talk for hours and hours and hours, but it doesn't actually sort of, you know, sort of come out quite the way it wants. So I will then edit a lot down. So, and doing that, you can actually get a book written if you really focus, if you really sort of set your mind to it, by making sure you don't get distracted. I mean, that's the thing that I found to be the key to all of this. Too many people get up in the morning and they open their emails. By the time they actually get around to doing any work, it's already 11.30 and the day's gone because they've been distracted by email. If you can focus and keep yourself away from all those distractions, you know, the pop-ups and all that sort of thing, um, I try and keep, apart from, apart from you know, um, apart from during the, uh, during the weekends, I, I, most of the time my phone is on silent. It does not pop up with any tings or bings or whatever. Um, I try to make sure that when I'm focused on these things that I'm doing, I don't have distractions. They are killers. So I turn off email until at least 9.30 and I only check it three times a day. Uh, I've had to train the people that I work with not to expect an instant email response from me because they won't get it. I checked my, and it, this came from a conversation I had with my dad, who said to me, what is it about email that's different to when I used to do the post with my secretary? We used to do the post three times a day. Why can't you do email three times a day? And I looked at him and went, because that's not the way the world works, dad. And then I went, yeah, it could do. Why not? Email is not something you have to respond to immediately. So I checked I check my email at 9.30. I check it again about 12.30 and I check it at 4.30 and I don't check it at any other time and I don't have it distracting me throughout the day. It's turned off and I only check it at those times because otherwise I'm toast. No, I, I fully agree with that. I think it's, it's difficult because this world does seem to have this expectation that you are immediately reachable at all times and I completely disagree with that. Like I think that um, you set the times, no one else does. And yeah, I mean, it's something that I struggle with and I'm really trying to do because I'm a massive workaholic and I do get addicted to these things. And it's so important to get yourself out of that headspace. And, you know, you dedicate your time when you need to. And the rest of the time, away from computers, away from that stuff, doing whatever work, um, enjoying yourself, relaxation, seeing friends, whatever, like you, you limit that time and you, and you make it effective. And as you say, like it, it, I think it 
forces you to be more efficient. If you've only got half an hour to read the emails and go through them, then you understand, you know, okay, some of these I'll have to get back to, some of these I can deal with now. And then, you know, if you don't, if you run out of time, well, I'll come back to it. Yeah, that's exactly so, it. Exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, in that, you mentioned that you do a podcast. Uh, the podcast is called It's Not Rocket Science, Five Questions Over Coffee. What can you tell us about it? So I kind of, um, it, 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 the, the podcast is, I get interesting people, and I hope you might get to be a guest on this one, Christian, when uh, when we've done this. So, um, look, I get I get interesting people to come on and just answer five questions. It's a bit cheeky, I'll be honest with you, because it's four questions plus plus a question where I say, "What's the question I should have asked you?" and get you to do the work. But anyway, so you know, I came up with the idea of doing that for for two reasons. One of which is. I'm fairly sure that um, I've got lots of ideas in my head, but once again, going back to my uh, scientific roots, not every idea I have is great. Not every idea everybody else wants to hear about. Some people would actually like to hear about other people's ideas. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, I'm a lifelong learning fan. So if I can get interesting people to come on and talk to my audience about stuff, I might pick up some interesting ideas from them. So I just love getting interesting people to come on and talk about their business and their ideas um, and the other thing that I hope to do with the podcast is actually sort of learn and and collaborate you know we can all help each other not the you know not, not everybody uh, wants to constantly sort of you know work with me but there might be somebody that I get to come on to my podcast who wants to work with somebody that, that I introduce to them mm. and they would be a better fit and I'd be as happy to introduce new and interesting people to the world as anybody else so the idea behind uh, behind it is is just those five questions i ask five simple questions it's done at, it's done it's it's done live on youtube and linkedin and facebook so people can come along and watch and ask questions of the interesting people that we get on i've had some tremendous guests i've had one guy that, that has worked with elon musk He's got some wow. really, really interesting ideas. I've got some really, uh, I got a guy who was a top executive of L'Oreal uh, and he's got some fantastic, he had some fantastic stuff to talk about. But I get people who come in and work with, you know, um, uh, individual people to try and help them to grow their business. So, you know, there is a wide range of people out there. They're all fascinating people to talk. Um, every single one of them, as I keep saying, you know, they have ideas, but, you know, most of the time our ideas are not rocket science they are they are you know easy to understand growing your business which is what i spend most of my time talking to people about isn't rocket science it is seems to be very complicated until you break it down there are some very simple rules that you have to put in place that's kind of what i'm trying to expose people to as i keep saying you know there are so many people out there that think that somehow growing their business there is some special magic formula that will sort of make it all happen a lot of the time there are no magic formulas what it is is just some very simple stuff you'd have to apply again and again and be very very uh, rigorous about doing and, and that's kind of the ideas that i'm trying to get people to buy into brilliant stuff yeah everyone make sure you go check that out it's the it's not rocket science five questions over coffee podcast fantastic um who would you say have been sort of your favorite brands to work with so far, favorite people to work with? Anything that in particular stands out over the course of your business career? Yeah, gosh. Um, you know, I've done some, I have done some really sort of fantastic work with some, some really brilliant people. Um, 
uh, there are some there are some um, there's been some really interesting ones. I, mean, I did I did some work as I said with the European Space Agency, uh, hugely technical stuff. Um, that was that was just just mind-bogglingly um, complicated and you know really sort of diving into some some difficult concepts in order to sort of be able to I guess sort of at that time we were sort of working on satellite communication stuff. So that that was an absolute mind-boggling stuff. Um, I did work for a short time um, for um, the, the the gas transport uh, for the for the UK. I worked with the people who move gas around. The <clears throat> if you want to, if you want to sort of understand just how critical at the moment getting gas to be able to power up the the power stations around the UK and how interconnected that is to the rest of Europe and mm. some of the complications there is there is some really interesting stuff behind that there is there is an awful lot of stuff that we keep thinking you know it's so easy to move away from this and start being more green and generating solar and then being able to power electric cars that we just have not yet got our heads around um, and, and similarly, you know, that infrastructure is so critical to that. So I've really enjoyed some of the stuff that I've done with that. But then, um, you know, I've also worked with some really um, interesting brands. I did some work with a couple of small pharmaceutical companies that nobody's ever heard of. Um, but they were inspirational because what was driving them was this belief, absolute rock solid belief that they were going to change people's lives um, they were working on um, drug delivery and drug um, uh, drug discovery and then delivering that and and the belief that that would affect even a small number of people's lives was was kind of inspirational uh, speaking on the topic of you know you working as a, a research virologist and um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this do you have any sort of insights or, or particular thoughts you could share on COVID-19? Uh, obviously, you mentioned before that, you know, you actually worked in the AstraZeneca lab, in the eventual lab that would be then be used to create the, um, the virus that they created. But I just wanted to get your thoughts as a scientist. And uh, clearly, you've, you've obviously been, you obviously have a unique insight and perspective on this being a scientist. I just wanted to, wondered if you could share that here. I think there are two things I'll say on that. <clears throat> um, uh, the, the, the viruses, viruses are a unique threat that we should not underestimate. Um, viruses are ever-changing um, and we naturally don't have much that we can do in order to stop them and the reason is that as i said a virus takes over your cell in order to become and, and turn it to its own will to start generating new viruses so unlike a, a bacterium something which we can sort of target and produce an antibiotic to stop it replicating in order to stop a virus replicating normally we have to stop the cell and that kind of kills you so there are some unique challenges with actually stopping viruses from from replicating the one thing you can do is be alert and ready for them and um, i don't think the world has done enough to constantly be on preparedness for those emerging threats 
Um, we've known about this for a while. I remember having discussions about the potential for a pandemic. And let me just start by saying, I'm not the only one that did this, said this sort of thing. This has been said by many, many others. But back in 2004, I believe it was, I saw what I thought was going to become a global pandemic. And I went out and bought a whole load of masks because I was absolutely convinced we would need masks in order to be able to leave our house and mix with other people. And I can remember at the time looking at my wife and we just had our uh, our son and I said to her I said I bought a load of masks she said do you genuinely think that we will leave the house wearing a mask and I said yes in the event of a global pandemic you will leave the house wearing a mask and she went and do you genuinely think that you will send Jacob to school and he will wear a mask and I said yes she said you're as mad as they come well 2020 those masks that had sat upside upstairs in my loft came down and I looked at her and went <laughs> I was just a few years early so <laughs> wow. I was I was I was absolutely convinced that there was going to be a pandemic and, and so you know viruses are unique in the fact that we do. the only way that we can stop viruses changing is to stop messing about with some of the environments in which they live quite happily out of our way and that is going to mean that we haven't got to start getting into the sort of ecology and the places where they are they naturally occur but we're going to have they're going to come out so we have to start thinking about having protection against viruses in the same way we have standing armies and it's not a good thing to have to think about but countries need to put in place surveillance they need to put in place if you like the 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 the, the people that will practice and be ready for pandemics in the way that the army practices and be ready for wars and they are more deadly than wars we will have to be more prepared it is not something that most politicians want to do because it is far too expensive to have people standing by waiting for a potential virus to emerge that needs a vaccine when people will look around and go well why are you paying millions and millions a year for something that hasn't happened for 10 years well because one day you will need them to swing into action and you need them to be ready and you need to be them to, to, to move into action very, very quickly. The, 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 the vaccines that got produced this time were because there had been years and years of research that had gone unnoticed. And we need to keep that years and years of research going unnoticed for many more years so that we can be ready next time. Um, a lot of what we got from the from the, the vaccine research was put in place because we were trying to do things like change to, to produce a vaccine for HIV. We've never produced a vaccine for HIV AIDS and yet it was able to be used to, 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 uh, to vaccinate against COVID-19. That may or may not have been um, possible. We just happened to break lucky on this occasion. Let's not assume it will be we'll be lucky next time. So I think I think that the two things I say is is coming back to my two points viruses are going to happen let's not start diving into the areas where we know these these viruses are and getting humans in contact with their natural reservoirs that means stopping sort of cutting down forests and cutting down those and we need to get prepared we need to make sure that we are standing up armies of people who will counteract those viruses pretty much constantly you mentioned that you had those concerns in like 2004. Yeah. And I just put this to a date line, timeline. I remember, maybe not in 2004, but I definitely remember in the 2000s, we had SARS and we had yeah. 
swine flu, bird yeah. flu, these these kind of um, yeah. yeah potential pandemics. And I remember every single time, media was always the same. This could be catastrophe, catastrophe. This could be a pandemic. Blah blah blah. It didn't happen. Now it's happened. Are you? And one of the things that you said in that was that we have to sort of be careful of the environments we're working within. And obviously, as we know, COVID-19 was, it came out of a lab in Wuhan. No, we is... don't know that. No, we don't know that. That's something that, which I, having, having spoken but, to people. Well, the, well, this is the thing, isn't there, from what I understand, there, there is a lab in Wuhan, which there is, is, a, there is a virology lab. There is a virology lab, but uh, I'll be honest, I worked in a virology lab and, mm. um, uh, I don't think we can we can we can say. I mean, there's no. There's, I can't categorically say it didn't happen. But you know, if you look at most virology labs and most scientists working mm. in virology labs, we are very very aware of what we call biosecurity, and those are the things which will prevent uh, the virus from escaping from the lab and ending up in the outside world so we we are really aware of the risks and i don't believe that wuhan lab is any more or less aware of those biohazards than any other one um, i think there is there is known to be a um a lot of the sort of virus that we're talking about living wild in areas of bits of china and on the uh, on the in the forests of vietnam and places like that where it doesn't have much harmful effects within things like bats, but as soon as it gets into a human being, because we ventured into the area where those bats are, it crosses over between those two animals, between those two species, and, and what is harmless in a bat becomes harmful in a human. And so when I'm talking about sort of not getting into those areas, if we, if we insist on going in and deforesting, areas where we know there are harmful viruses and and interacting with animals and with things where the virus is not doing any harm but it could be harmful to us we are going to to start to sort of have more and more of these problems so my my exhortation if you like is we know where we shouldn't be let's stay out of it i don't think there's any evidence to say that this virus came out of a, a lab in Wuhan any more than it came out of my lab in Oxford. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't saying for definite. I mean, this is just kind of the official story we've been given that it's, um, there's a lab there that's obviously for virology. We know that there's a wet market and then there's, there was bats. I know it was a very confusing story to listen to. It is, it is. It and is I confusing. was kind of like, but yeah, what you, what you were saying there was kind of more what I was, um, I wanted to, hint at which is why do we think this has happened and it sounds like the kind of overall perspective there is it's probably happened because we're in these areas as you say where it's kind of more likely to come into such a, we, 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 a widespread we, manner maybe I, yeah. I, I don't know i mean because I, th I think the key, the key here is that like there's lots of viruses there's always going to be viruses yeah. But this is one that's taken over the world. And I suppose that leads us to sort of ask the questions, well, why? Why is it why is it so quick, so fast mutating, so unmanageable compared to say SARS, swine flu, etc. You know, so you know, this is the great this is yeah. Well, okay, so so there there are certain characteristics of 
of particular viruses which are really difficult to to you know we have we have so many things that we've got to worry about the thing which has made this particular virus so deadly is because of the fact that it is infectious before somebody gets any symptoms mm. so you don't know you're spreading it <laughs> so so you can feel you can feel well and to be spreading it and then two days later you go oh i shouldn't be spreading this around because i feel ill now well it's the previous few days that has actually sort of spread it the other thing that's really unpleasant about this one is the fact that 30 percent of people who have got the virus and they're expressing it as it's, it's expresses it means that they're chucking it out when they're expressing it they don't know they've even got it now that's not the case with most viruses which are very very deadly where you know the the original SARS we were able to stamp down on keep it controlled because you didn't start spreading it until you got ill so as a result as soon as somebody got ill lock them away keep them out of the way of everybody it didn't spread uh, this one unfortunately has a characteristic where it spreads before you're ill and some people don't even seem to get ill and so that's why for me the most important thing we can do at the moment is be really clear on monitoring the, the and testing for it and i know most governments around the world are now beginning to ramp down their testing because it's very expensive let's be honest it is very expensive to keep doing but because they've got so much invested in that um, we have got to start thinking about how do we reduce the incidence of it by constantly monitoring and putting in place protective behaviours. And those protective behaviours involve still wearing masks and still trying to avoid large crowds of people. Well, this is the thing. I mean, as, as you mentioned, like different countries are doing it differently. Um, the UK government has seemingly told us to pretty much go all back to normal as far as I can see, I mean, people are still wearing masks in certain situations. It's kind of a choice factor at this point, but no official measures are being taken place, uh, taking place anymore. There's no expectation upon you. You're not sort of told that you have to do that anymore. Do you, I don't want to pin you on a yes or no question, but generally, do you think this is a good approach or do you think maybe we should be doing it like other countries? I mean, my personal belief, I'll give you mine, is that I think, I, I, do, I recognize that we have to kind of go to some semblance of normality because mm -hmm. of things like the economy and business and et cetera. You, you have to, you, you just have to, otherwise you can't continue as a, as a nation. But at the same sort of thing, I felt like it's still a little bit too soon. I don't know. I felt like, like I remember, um, one of the, my housemates that I used to live with is, um, was a doctor, is a doctor. And uh, one of the first questions I asked him a couple of months in, maybe six months into the pandemic, I was like, how long do you reckon this will realistically last? And he, his, he immediately said, I envision at least two, three years, like 2023 was kind of the estimate he gave in his mind. And he was, it's not far off. I mean, you know, yeah, we were trialing in 2021. And I feel like now we could honestly say we're sort of back to normal here in the UK, but it still feels very premature. Like, I feel like, although I feel I, I almost feel like because of other things, like, you know, for example, where the government is, you know, with all the things they were getting up to. Um, they've, they, this is almost like, 
a way of carrying favor. It's almost like, okay, well, you know, we put you through all this stuff. We made these mistakes. They're, now we're going back to normal. And it's like, is this really the best thing for us from a health perspective? I don't know. I worry that it is too early. I worry that this is now um, a, a, an experiment on whether or not you can get back to normal with no real effects. Mm. Um, we're hearing a lot about new variants at the moment, which are much more likely to transmit. Um, there's no guarantee that the next variant won't be twice as deadly. <laughs> there's absolutely no guarantee that the next one won't, won't kill 10, 10, 10 times more people. Um, there's, there's nothing which says a virus has to become less uh, deadly um, as it, it there is a tendency, obviously, sometimes for that to happen. There's no guarantee of it. So um, what has to happen is what we were just talking about, which is, which is great surveillance systems have to be in place. Those great surveillance systems looking for things. I personally um, would like to think that we should have remained more aware of the risks and the protections that would been put in place until we get out of what is normally the respiratory virus season which is ending around sort of april may time it you know because viruses are much less likely to transmit when we're all outside and it's nice and warm what have you so we we need we need to 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 to, to continue to be aware of it until then but personally um I think that the great solution that we all need to put in place is, is awareness and surveillance. And I'm looking for that. I've not seen as much evidence of it yet. Uh, but as I say, it costs a lot of money to do surveillance. It costs yeah. a lot. No, I, I, I completely agree with you on that. I mean, when, when people were saying earlier in, in this pandemic, like, oh, you know, um, I don't know if this is good for the economy, blah, blah, blah. I, I agreed with them. I, I, I kind of, I felt like as much as I don't always agree with the way Tories do things, they are business minded. And that's where their mindset was. It's like, if we leave this any longer, this is going to harm the UK economy in a big way that might not be recoverable. And as crazy as it sounds, you do need to, like when you're running a country, you do need to consider that as much as health is obviously of the utmost importance. You kind of got to balance it out with these other things. And I remember at the very beginning of all of this, before we even entered the pandemic, the initial government response was to go for a kind of the, the response we're going for now, actually, which is, you know, just kind of let people get it, let people, you know, fight it and then build up a natural immunity. Yeah. Yeah. But now, is- and, and, you know, obviously we quickly sort of realized we couldn't do that and we needed to respond quickly and, the rest is history but it seems like now you know we're, we're at the other side you know everyone's had their booster jabs their vaccines and everything and we're kind of just i feel like we're waiting i feel like it's a, a kind of like a period of like let's just see what happens and just hope for the best i think yeah. i think we do we, i mean you look around people are tired of, of pandemics i mean sure you, yeah you eventually all get pandemic fatigue we all need to sort of live um you can't live under siege forever um it it becomes it becomes too much um but you know the 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 thing which which will protect everything is the ability to actually watch and learn and that is going to be a 
uh, it's going to be as much about politics as it is about as about science. Are we prepared to to be a learning society? Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, and I really appreciate it. No problem. Um, let's mix it up. Just a final couple of questions for you. What's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> uh, gosh, um, uh, the best advice I ever received was, uh, "What's the worst that could happen?" Um, uh, as a as a as a young as a young person coming coming out, sort of somebody focused. So I sat and catastrophized about if I'd made a decision, and it and they looked at me and went, "Well, what's the worst could have happened?" And I went, "Well, probably nothing." And he went, "Well, stop worrying about it then." Um, so, <laughs> so I I I kind of I kind of take that forward a lot now. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, if uh, you make a wrong decision. Um, uh, if it isn't, if it isn't going to end up in somebody's somebody's death, you're probably okay. Uh, a lot of what I did nowadays, I probably am not going to end up killing somebody. Uh, you know, uh, I've long gone past the point at which um, uh, embarrassment is something to stop me doing something. Uh, but yeah, the best advice I ever got was uh, somebody basically stopping me and saying, "Well, what is the worst that could happen?" And and most of the time, it's not. It's you, you're going to learn from it and i back that up with the other thing which is you know you never ever fail you just learn so you know i've, I've we started the conversation we talking to you about being a learning it all being a learning journey i've never failed at anything i wouldn't do some of the stuff i've done again uh, but that doesn't mean i failed that means i've learned from it uh, how does a baby learn to walk? Well, it falls flat on its backside and thinks, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'll try something different. So get up off your backside and try something different. Brilliant. Um, thank you for that. <laughs> Similar question, um, but slightly different focus. In your personal life, what's the biggest life lesson you've learned so far? Well, uh, um, the biggest life lesson I ever learned was I have to be an example. I, in my, in my business, um, in my relationship with my, with my son, um, in my relationship with, with the people that I work with, um, I have to be the example that, that says, this is the thing that I believe in and the things that I want to see being done. And if I don't live them, if I just speak them, it's hollow. So for me, I now live what I want other people to do. Um, not always easy because sometimes it is a challenge because you think there's an easy path here. And sometimes the easy path is far too appealing but it isn't going to end up with the behaviors that you want others to, 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 to live. So I have to live what I want to be my legacy, if you want. So be the example. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Stuart. Um, as, as we draw things to a close for today, do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? So yeah, upcoming projects. So you know, one of the things. I mean, obviously, um, uh, I, you know, as I said, I'm I'm trying to write uh, yet another book. I'm in the process at the moment of 
pulling together online courses while all of this stuff in my head is available to more people rather than me just having to sort of talk about it. Um, the, the podcast is going on. I think the thing that I'm most excited about, the thing that I'm really excited about is um, I am going to be um, uh, going to be launching uh, a, a, a series of, of, of talks um, and me standing on stage actually talking, which I've not been, uh, I've been doing in a, in, a, in, a, in a small way, but I'm now just beginning to sort of end up on stages at bigger and bigger venues. Um, so, uh, you know, um, in the last two years, we've not been doing a lot of that. I'm now actually going back out and speaking to people. I just, I love the reactions that you get when you stand up and talk to a bunch of people um, and you try and just sort of put some of this stuff across. Um, and, and we're going to see how that goes. It's not something I've uh, I've done a lot of before, but it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of fun putting it together and trying to sort of get some of these thoughts out to the world. Often, um, often not uh, not in a in a way that that uh, is is easy to to capture, uh, like working with somebody like you. But I'm just learning how to put it together in a much more concise fashion instead of trying to spread it over four and a half hours and boring everybody. I don't think it would ever be boring listening to you for four hours. <laughs> I've, I've had a great time. I, I can't speak for anyone else. It's been good I've fun. It's been good fun. Best of luck with, with that and uh, everything else that you're doing. And uh, yeah, just a massive thank you for being on the show. No problem at all, Christian. It's been great fun. And to all my listeners of Christian Reef Podcast, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.